church, go ahead and find a seat. And if you've got your scriptures, go ahead and open them up to Galatians chapter 5. If you do not have uh, the Lord's Word, raise your hand and we'll be happy to bring that to the seat for you where you're sitting so that you can be properly equipped with the things that you need. I'm so very grateful that the Lord has chosen to bless our church with some versatile musicians that can uh, step up and, and be able to lead us well in singing the Lord's songs, uh, even in the absence of our, our worship leader, Matt. Uh, grateful for our friends who are up at the snow trip right now, the, the leaders who have taken time out of their schedule to be there for our kids and for the, the speaker who's come to preach the word, uh, for the band who's there leading them in, in worship, and so uh, but I'm very, very grateful that we've got uh, such a, a diverse amount of gifting here at our church that the Lord provides for our needs and gives us the things that our church needs to worship Him well. A quick announcement for you all. I want to remind you again about the business meeting. Uh, next week, we will be meeting at 10 a.m., so you get a little bit extra sleep. Um, we are also going to be having a potluck afterwards, and if you don't know what to bring in your worship folder, there's a little slip of paper that will tell you, according to your last name, what we would, uh, we would like you to bring to that. Um, but if you can't bring anything, don't let that keep you from coming. We want to fellowship with you. We want to be near to you. Uh, so even if you can't bring any food, um, no problem at all. The Lord will provide uh, through other people. So we want you to be there. We also want to let you know that because it's one service, we're not going to be having full Sunday school for our children. We will have nursery available for children three and under. Uh, so basically kids who are toddlers who need diaper changes, those kind of things. We will have a nursery for them. Uh, Mark and Lisa are going to provide that for us in the nursery. But uh, the rest of our children, we're just inviting you to bring them in. And uh, we're going to put some extra chairs in here so hopefully we can fit the whole family. But we're also going to have an uh, overflow going on in our fellowship hall. So if you feel more comfortable in there, if you're a little bit self-conscious about the kids making noise, you can go up there if you like and, and watch the live feed. They'll be seeing the same things that we're seeing down here, uh, singing the same songs. Uh, but also, we love having children in the service, so feel free to bring your kids, and uh, we, we'd love to invite them in as we worship together and as we consider the things that God has done in 2018 for our church and the plans that we have moving forward in, in 2019. We've been in prayer, and, and you know the Lord has every right to change our plans, but we do have some things looking forward that we would like to accomplish, and so come and be a part of that next week uh, at 10 o'clock, worship service. Right after that, following that, will be our business meeting, and uh, if we be ordaining our, uh, our deacons, Lord willing, and then we'll have a potluck after that. All right, are you ready to go? You got yourself into this mess. You're going to have to get yourself out of it. How many of you heard somebody tell you that before? Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you were a teenager uh, or a child in your parents' household. Maybe it was your boss who was tired of uh, of, of trying to cover for mistakes. Maybe it was your spouse. You've probably heard that line at some point or another in your life. If that was God's attitude towards sinful man, then a dark cloud of doom would hang over every one of us. You've gotten yourself into this mess. You're going to have to get yourself out of it. The Scripture teaches us loud and clear that sin is the most serious problem that mankind has to contend with. It is the most serious mess that we have made for ourselves. When man, who is created by God to be loved by Him, to live in a dependent relationship with Him, when man disregards God's authority and breaks His commands, 
a serious division of relationship occurs. Man and God can no longer live in harmony. Because of sin, man is far from God and worthy of God's judgment. That is a serious problem. And it is a universal problem. I'm not just talking about the bad people of the world. I'm not just talking about the people who are on America's most wanted list. We're talking about every human being has fallen into this problem. Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 through 3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This statement, inspired by the Holy Spirit from Psalm 14, is not an exaggeration. It is repeated again, almost verbatim, in Psalm 53. It is repeated hundreds of years later in the New Testament, in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul plainly lays out the facts in chapter 3 of his, his letter, that all people struggle with this serious problem of sin. In the Old Testament, God gave the people His law, didn't He? If there was any hope that mankind could pull himself out of his sin mess by his own efforts, by his own labors, then it would have had to been through that law. And yet every human being who made the attempt failed to keep that law. They fell short of it. We all got ourselves into this problem of sin, but the law proved to us that there was no way for us to get ourselves out of it. While we might keep some of God's law most of the time, the attempt at righteousness doesn't undo our sin. And eventually we break the law again, proving that we are not fit to save ourselves. Thankfully, the Lord has not left us in that sorry, helpless state Instead, He has sent a solution to our sin problem. He has sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus accomplished what seemed impossible to us. As the fullness of God come to earth in the very nature of man, Jesus was able to keep every aspect of the law of God. He met every expectation. He never violated God's commands. He always acted in truth and in love. And having fulfilled the demands of righteousness, he went one step further. Jesus stepped in. He took the sins of God's people upon his own shoulders and he voluntarily paid the penalty for those sins himself. He allowed himself to be executed on a cross. He was executed for our sin. Not for his own, for he had none of his own. He was executed so that anyone who trusted in him by faith, would not have to lose their lives because their debt had already been paid for them by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was God in the flesh, the grave could not hold Him. On the third day after He was crucified, He rose from the grave in triumph and He reigns today at the right hand of God the Father until His return. You and I can't get ourselves out of the mess that we've made. And praise be to Jesus, we don't have to. We've been liberated from the legalistic heart that insists on doing it all on our own. Now we can live in the wonderful state of grace that Christ has prepared for us, the state that we were designed to live in in the first place, trusting in God, 
experiencing His loving provision and watching as He makes us new by, fulfill, by filling us with His Holy Spirit and helping us to bear good fruit for His kingdom. That wonderful productivity has been our theme for the last several weeks here in church and continues on today in chapter 5 of Galatians. All who have been redeemed by Jesus have been set free from sin. He has paid our debts and is changing our hearts so that we can live lives that reflect the good attributes of God. Lives that trust in Him and that bear the evidence of true redemption. And so if you've got your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read a, again this passage that we've been really meditating on here for the last few weeks, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. These verses describe the physical manifestations of grace in the life of the believer. When we trust in Jesus to save us, He justifies us. That means He declares us legally righteous before God. While we used to be enemies of the Lord, through Jesus Christ now, we are holy and pure before Him because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. Our sins defeated, and we're no longer enemies to the Lord. But justification is not the end of it. The next great work that God does in the life of a justified person is called sanctification. Sanctification is the continual process of becoming more like Jesus Christ, increasing in holiness as the things of God replace the rebellious habits of man that used to define who we were. Sanctification is not itself salvation. It is a product of salvation. Those who are not saved in Christ cannot really experience true sanctification. You did not get yourself out of the mess of sin that you used to be in, but once Jesus has released you from that condemnation, you will not stay the same person. <clears throat> you will necessarily change for the better. The second half of the passage that we're studying shows the two simultaneous processes of sanctification. Look again at verse 24. It says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now this, of course, is meant in a metaphorical sense, but there's some real truth undergirding this metaphor. We are given instruction here to mortify the flesh. That word mortify, mortify is not commonly used in, in English language today, but it means to put to death. A mortician is one who deals with things of death. And for to mortify, mortify sin, that means that we are to recognize our tendency, our habit to rebel against God, our nature to ignore His commands and to do what we want to do rather than faithfully obeying what He has called us to do, to identify those tendencies and then to prune them out of our lives, to get rid of them, to put them to death. 
So when we are, are told here that those belong to Christ, crucify the flesh, that doesn't mean we literally get up on a cross, but it means that the part of us that does not comply with Christ needs to be put to death. It needs to be, it needs to be laid to rest. Your flesh, your impulses that get you into trouble, we need to let sin laid to, be laid to waste in our lives. We talked about that quite a bit last week. Romans 6.11 confirms this when it says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So part of the idea of sanctification is putting to death the things that used to reign in us, these wickednesses that don't match our new personality, our new character in the Lord. And then verse 25 talks about the second half, the other side of the coin, which tells us we need to keep in step with the Spirit. Now this is actually a military analogy. When we are told to keep in step with the Spirit, what the Apostle Paul wants us to see there, is he wants us to picture a garrison of Roman soldiers. They have one goal in mind. They are led by a common commander. And they are forceful. As that commander gives them instruction, they move not willy-nilly, not however they want to move. They move in step with one another. They are under the same commander. They are moving towards the same goal. They are unified in purpose. And so when the flesh is being mortified and put away, we need to then start to walk in step with this new commander that has been given to us, with the Holy Spirit which resides in us that helps us to understand the commands of God, that we might interpret them properly, that we might walk in step with who? With our fellow soldiers, with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have also been saved by like grace. Notice how every fruit of the Spirit directly impacts the way we interact with one another. These fruits of the Spirit, these expressions of walking in step with the Holy Spirit, are going to impact the way we deal one to another here in the context of God's church. The sanctification that we're talking about this morning is evidential. It will eventually become obvious whether there was truly justification. Because if Jesus is not our commanding officer, there's nothing to keep us in step with Him. And there are sadly those who at times profess Christ, but do not walk in step with Him. There is a a verbal agreement with the things of the Lord, but their life would prove that in the heart they don't truly agree with what God wants for them. He has not truly started to command their lives the way that He desires to. The sanctification, the sanctified action that we are to live by doesn't save us, but it flows out of a truly saved heart. So if we're content to never be sanctified, it likely indicates that our hearts have not been justified. And that first step still needs to happen in us. That that humility that comes before the Lord God and realizes that there is no way for us to get ourselves out of the mess. Keeping in the steps of the Spirit, meaning seeking God's Word, seeking Him in prayer, desiring true fellowship with other believers, worshiping Him together, exalting His name, means taking the communion together, means preaching the Word of God to one another. It means self-examination. It means listening to one another, meditating on the Word of God and sharing in the good things that God has given to us. When we keep in the steps of the Spirit, then we are far more prone to bear good fruit for the Lord. And so let's examine three more of those fruit today as we ask God to grow us and to mature us and to help us become more sanctified 
like Christ. Fruit number five is kindness. It is kindness. And, uh, and in, in each of these fruits, I've given you the Greek equivalent. Christos, to say, is, is the Greek equivalent to this word. And I don't pretend to be a Greek scholar, friends. I'm not fluent in the languages. I don't take my Greek Bible and sit with my large cup of coffee in the morning and study out of the original languages. I wish I could do that. But it does benefit us from time to time to take some attention and place it upon the actual words that God gives to us. These words are inspired. They are revealed by Him. And this word kindness, it's, a, it's an important word for us to understand. It means well fit for use. That's what kindness really means. Well fit for use. Suitable for the purposes of God. Philip Ryken, uh, one of my favorite commenters on the book of Galatians, says that kindness is a constant readiness to help. It's the extension of God's grace to the people around us through practical actions of caring. That's a, that's a great definition. That's a great way for us to think of kindness because we often just think of kindness as being nice. You know, Just don't be mean to people. That's kindness. But there's more to this word that I think many of us are not grabbing onto. Kindness is by its very definition a charitable approach towards others. It is being aware that others need grace just like we need grace. But then also realizing that the grace of God has granted has been granted to you and that you have more than enough grace to help others out in their need, to be a blessing to someone else and to being willing and ready to act in a loving way so that you might bless their need is a way to bear fruit for the Holy Spirit. How can we show this kind of kindness? I've listed just a few examples. There's many more ways that you can show kindness, but I want us to think in practical terms here because, again, the fruit of the Spirit are real manifestations of the change that's been going on in our hearts. So if you want to show kindness, you can start by paying attention. Pay attention to the people who are around you. This kindness that we're talking about here is learned behavior. We naturally care about the self first. We naturally pay attention to our own needs and our own desires. So if you want to be kind, that means you're going to have to start looking beyond the borders of your own realm. You're going to have to start thinking about the people around you. See how you might help others in a time of need. 1 Peter 3.7 is one of um, my favorite verses as I try to be a good husband because it says that we as husbands are to dwell with our wives in an understanding way. That's, that's really important for us to grab onto, that we are to try to understand another person because how can you really be kind to someone else if you don't understand them enough to have a grasp on what kind of needs they have? If you're to be ready to help in a time of need, you have to look around at the people who are, who are near you and say, what do they need? How might I meet this need? What, is, what are they struggling with? How are they, how are they not seeing their own needs met today? So we need to learn how to pay attention to one another, to be scientific in the way we look at others. If you're not naturally aware of other people, then start to build into your life some disciplines where you consciously try to take note of the things that are going on around you. Watch your children. Ask yourself, why do they keep behaving the way that they do? Does it show a need in them? Is there something in the God's Word that I need to start teaching them so that they'll be better equipped to be a little young man, a little young woman growing up into, into a, a faithful person of God. Think about the needs that your wife, your spouse has. 
consider what, what causes them anxiety. Consider what puts them on edge. Pay attention to the things that are going on around you and especially to the hearts of the people that God has put in your life. Second thing I would encourage you to do if you want to be kind is to be one who initiates. Take the first step of love if you want to be kind to others. Volunteer to meet that person's needs before they have to feel embarrassed in asking for assistance. So much kindness is needed that is never requested because people don't want to be a burden to others. They have a great need, a desire for fellowship, a desire for assistance, a desire for wisdom, and yet they don't want to come across as foolish. They don't want to come across as needy. They don't want to be a burden on your life, which they probably view as perfect and all in order, even though none of us have perfect lives that are all in order. So if you want to be kind to others, then look for the need in others, and then don't wait for them to say, I need help. Because by that time, it might be later than it needs to be. See a need and, and suggest that you'd like to meet that need. You know how much of a relief it would be to a brother or sister for you to come up to them and just say, hey, you know what? It would be a blessing for me if you would allow me to be a good brother or sister in the Lord and help you watch your kids right now. It seems like you're, you know, that you've, you've got your hands full. Can I take that little one for you for a little bit? What a relief off the shoulders of a brother or sister to see somebody who knows that you have a need and then steps forward to meet it before it's asked. Third, a third suggestion for kindness. Temper your expectations of others. Be careful that you are not demanding more of your neighbor than Jesus demands of you. Extra grace towards others is a blessing to them. Do not make unnecessary demands on people so that they feel they are always falling short of your expectations. You are not able to get yourself out of trouble, right? So don't expect everyone else in your life to do that for themselves either. If we have right expectations and realize that we're dealing with fallen human beings who may be redeemed but are not yet glorified in perfection, if we understand that human beings have faults and we give them room to make mistakes and don't get emotional every time something doesn't go the way we want it to, then we can work towards a better unity, a better harmony in the body of Christ. That kindness extended to another, that grace to be able to make a mistake and still be loved is exactly the kind of grace that you've been given in Jesus Christ. Again, though these fruits of the Spirit are practical, they don't come from you. They come from God in you. They come from the Holy Spirit that you're supposed to be walking in step with. So even though you might not be a naturally attentive person, even though you might be naturally kind of judgmental, don't think that that's just the way you're going to live your life and everyone's going to have to deal with it. Because whatever is natural in you needs to be offset by the fact that there's something supernatural in you now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're filled with the presence of God. And the ability to live beyond who you just naturally are has been given to you. So temper your expectations of others. And then fourthly, determine to share or to defer a blessing that God has given to you to someone else who needs it more than you do. How many of us would say that God has given us more than we really need? Why do you think He did that? Why do you think He has filled your cup to overflowing? 
because he likes having blessings all over the floor. No, so that your cup can flow into somebody else's cup who doesn't have much. All right? God blesses us abundantly, not so that we can just live in the lap of luxury and, and prosper until the, the end of the age. He blesses us so that we can bless other people too. So consider what God has given to you. Think, take inventory, take stock of the many things that God has said here. Be a steward of what, what is mine. Take this and use it for my good and my blessing. How can you share what God has given to you with somebody else? It might be a talent that you have. It might be a skill that others lack that you abound in. It might be some physical resource, some material thing that somebody else needs to get by that you've got more than you need or you don't use anymore or, or that you just know they need more than you do. Be willing to share. Be willing to give that blessing to someone else and to be a conduit of God's love. These are all just a few suggestions of ways that we might be more actively kind, more ready for the use of God. And as you start to live these things out, you'll see what joy it is to watch God use you to meet the needs in His church. To watch God use you to bless others who are hurting and to lift their head by having the Spirit in you actively minister to their hearts by just paying attention, by just taking the first step of love, by simply keeping your expectations realistic and showing somebody that even if they're not what they want to be yet, you will love them in the Lord. Consider the attractive power of kindness. Now, I, I say these things a little cautiously because I know in the secular world, there's a, there's a book out there about the, uh, the power of attraction or the secret of attraction. And it's the idea of believing things into existence and that's all garbage. And just um, that's my theological evaluation of that. It's garbage. Um, we are not told that if you just believe, 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 you're going to get, get, get. Believe on Christ. Get Christ. That's all you need. That's what we're told. But when we look at kindness and how kindness is lived out in an active sense from brother to sister and sister to brother and brother to brother and family to family, it is so attractive to see that kind of kindness alive in us. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's great kindness to you has shown to you His love for you. He has put on display His heart as He has been kind to you. And as you see that kindness, He has used it to woo your stubborn heart away from your selfishness, away from this idea that you've got to be in charge of your own stuff all the time. He has shown you by His kindness that He is a better leader than you are. That He's a better king. And He has led you to repentance. Have you drawn the conclusion yet that it's hard to love without kindness? Truth minus love is empty and so often presents as cruel and uncaring. It is sadly very common to see Christians who have come to possess the truth of God's gospel. And yet the way that they declare that truth is effective in harming more than in helping others. Particularly those who don't yet trust in Jesus because that truth is delivered completely void of the kindness that God wants to show us His love with. He uses His love to lead us to, to repentance. So you might ask yourself, brother or sister, is my approach intended to help this person? As I approach someone with the truth, if I want to confront a sin in somebody else, or if I want to help somebody see their need for Christ, is my motivation behind that truly kindness? 
Am I desiring to be used by the Lord to help the gospel shine and to let the hope of Jesus Christ be revealed to this individual that used to be living in the darkness? Or is my handling of truth right now more a means to my own ends? A proof that I know more than the next person. A proof that I am wiser or smarter or more beloved by God or more obedient to the gospel call. Let kindness dictate how we serve the Lord God. Be ready to be used by Him. And in doing so, people will see the sweetness of the grace of Jesus. <clears throat> and uh, I need to make a confession here to you all. If, if I'm not careful, I tend to bring the truth to my own kids without love. That's one of the things that God has revealed in me through being a father. We learn so much through being parents. And some of it are, are hard lessons. I find myself too often being angry at my children for not behaving the way I think that they should instead of desiring a greater love for Christ in my children. And if we just put our efforts into correcting the behavior of others so that they'll be more peaceful to us, so that they won't bug us so much or get on our nerves, then we're not really loving them. There's not truly kindness behind that delivery of truth. And so that's something that God is working on in my heart. I'm trying to be more loving to my kids, even in correcting them. Because to be kind doesn't mean that we go to any lengths to avoid offending people. That's not what kindness is. Romans 2.4, what does God's kindness attract us to? What does it lead us to? It leads us to repentance. So kindness isn't just utter coexistence where we just let everybody do what they want to do. Kindness means that we love them enough to come in a kind and considerate way and show them the truth of the gospel. We help them understand what they need so that they can repent well to the Lord and have the best gift they could ever receive, the reconcil uh, reconciliation of Jesus Christ. Romans 11.22 says essentially the same thing. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. See those two things? They're not opponents. Kindness and severity of God. He is kind to us, but He's also honest and true. He's also our judge, even though He is the lover of our soul. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You see, this God that we serve is a God who will eventually judge all things. So in order to love people well, we cannot just mold our interaction with them around this idea of never being offensive. What we have to do is make sure that the truth, which does sting, comes with a heavy dose of kindness and love and affection, and that our desire to see people repent unto the Lord is always for their blessing and for the glory of Jesus Christ. In fact, if we don't care, or if we care more about being liked by that person, and that's not true kindness. You might keep the peace and the unity between you and them, but if you're not willing to share the truth of God with them, then there is no true love there. I'm going to get down to the sixth fruit of the, love, uh, the Spirit now. The sixth fruit of the Spirit is very closely related to the fifth. Kindness goes hand in hand with this idea of goodness. Agathosune. Agathosune is goodness. This is not a term that was borrowed from the secular world. In fact, if you were to read a bunch of Greek literature before the time of Christ, you would not find this word anywhere. 
you do find that the secular world goes on to adapt this from Christians and begin to use it in the, in the Roman language. So this is a uniquely gospel-centered word. It is a commitment to moral excellence that is rooted in the exemplary goodness of God himself. A pursuit of moral excellence that is rooted in the exemplary goodness of God himself. We need to desire this fruit of goodness with a healthy and heavy helping of humility. Remember the words that our Savior spoke in Mark 10. It almost seems like a little amendment to the real story that was going on, but don't miss this. Mark chapter 10, starting verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The word for good there is this word, uh, for goodness, the same type of word. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes on to meet the guy's need and, and show him um, what he needed to see, which was something that was hard for him, was something that he didn't want to hear, but in God's kindness, Christ had to share that with him. But don't miss the small little comment that Jesus makes. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Friends, we cannot be perfectly good. We cannot keep this command perfectly. Only God can. Herein lies the irony, of course, of Christ's questioning back to that man. Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? Notice he doesn't say I'm not good. He says no one is good except for God. So what is Jesus essentially saying about himself if he truly is a good teacher? He's revealing in a very subtle way that he is God in the flesh, here to teach us and show us and to be that standout example of goodness that we need to see. So we cannot be perfectly good. But by the power of the Spirit of God, we can be far more good than our human nature would otherwise allow us to be. Have you done um, any of those personality tests? Have you ever done like Myers-Briggs? or What's the one that Alicia does, anagrams or something? Enneagrams, okay? There's different formats. You, you ask a bunch of questions of yourself, you answer them, and then you tally all the answers, and there's usually some complicated math equation. You lose me right there, the math. But the math equation will tell you what kind of standard personality you are, and there's several different kinds. So uh, if you're a Myers-Briggs fan, uh, then you might be like me, an INTJ. But there are other ones, because some people like acronyms less than they like animals. So there are other ones where you're, you are like a Labrador Retriever. Most people would rather be a Labrador than a, an acronym. So uh, these Myers-Briggs tests or these personality tests will help you to get a better understanding of your tendencies. They sometimes are very accurate in the way they describe the, the ways you approach conflict or the way you understand other people's emotions or the way you engage with other people or don't engage. Are you a people person or are you more one-on-one? -on -one? These, these Enneagrams and these, these, uh, these tests can be a useful tool to us. But one of the things I don't like about them is that sometimes they give us an excuse to just be what we already were. You know, you, you define yourself. You're, okay, I'm an INTJ, so I'm just going to be judging to other people. That's just the way that I am. People are going to have to adapt to me because that's how I was designed. When in reality, God says, you belong to me? Oh, let me show you this list of the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit lives in you now. So what you used to be is not what you're going to be forever. Because now I'm going to start to make you a little bit more like what I am. 
Uh, these personality tests, they're not a sin. You can take them. You can benefit from them. But realize that God doesn't just sit back and say, oh, that's just who you are. No worries. I'm not going to ask anything more of you. He has the power to overcome anything in us that doesn't belong. So while we are not naturally good, He calls us to goodness. And He equips us through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in step with His wonderful goodness. We have come to see a greater goodness than our own. We've come to see the greatest goodness of all, and it is to that goodness that we should aspire. Agathosune, agathosune. The sense in this word is going the extra mile when it is not required of you. It is above and beyond virtue. The absence of obvious sinfulness is not enough. To be good is not to just never murder and to never commit adultery and to never do the things that the world would all agree are bad things, but to be good is to desire to be a loving person, to go out and apply the good principles of God in every situation. We are not driven by pragmatism here at First Family Church. We don't gather together just so we can become better people. That's not the end goal. The end goal is the exaltation of Jesus Christ in our lives. But the outflow of that will be practical good. We will see brothers and sisters in Christ living in such a way that God is more glorified in their attitude, in their actions, in their words. Perhaps the reason this special term was used by the New Testament writers was because the Greeks knew about goodness. They had what they called virtue, kalos in the Greek. They had this idea of being a good person, a good citizen, a valuable individual. But it was all based off of what you could muster in yourself. How can you prove your goodness to the world? By being strong at battle, by having a good work ethic, by being consistent and reliable. I think that the church uses a different word here because their goodness comes from a different source. Their goodness is not what is found inside of the person that makes them valuable. It is the Holy Spirit which has come to reside in that person out of which they can live a godly and good life. So this kind of goodness is a distinct pursuit of virtue but not the exalt of the self, rather the exaltation of the source of virtue which is God. One more thing to consider about goodness is this little verse from Romans 15, 14. It says, I myself am satisfied about you. This is Paul talking to the church in Romans or in Rome. It says, I am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So what he's saying there is that there is a distinct connection between being able to do what is good and knowing what good is according to God. You want to be a good person. You have to buy necessity seek the knowledge of goodness which is only found in the Lord's word there are endless versions of what is good in our society today but there is only one version of good that is reliable and will last the test of time God's word is infallible it is eternal it never becomes obsolete and so to be good to live a life that is kind that is loving that is patient we have to know the Word of God. We have to pursue the truth that He has revealed to us. Let's look at uh, fruit number seven here before we close out. We've got enough time for this one today. Fruit number seven is faithfulness. And the word for faithfulness in the Greek here is pistis, which is a very commonly used word. You see it throughout the New Testament, and most of the time, it's simply the word for faith. 
But here, as it is, is used as a noun, it means something slightly different than just having faith. This is the exact word used um, as faith in other places, but here we translate it best as fidelity. Fidelity, which means faithfulness. Faithfulness. As I trust God and His Word, I will start to live in such a way that I become the kind of person who is easier to trust. Does that make sense? The more I live out the goodness of God, the more I am faithful to walk in step with the Spirit, the more people are going to examine my ways, the more they're going to examine my attitude and my heart, and they're going to be more comfortable trusting in me. That means i got to be truthful, right? Because nobody trusts people that, that lie. Truthfulness is... I can't overrate it in the life of a Christian. We've got to be followers after the veritas, this truth that God stands for. He came to declare the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He draws us to His truth. His word is truth. And so we as His people must be dedicated to being honest in our relationships with others. Remember in Matthew chapter 25 when uh, Jesus tells this parable. He's talking about a master who has three different servants, and this master is preparing to go to a faraway place. And so as he's going to be gone for quite some time, he doesn't want his resources tied up and doing nothing. So he assigns three different stewards with varying degrees of responsibility over his resources. To the first, he gives five talents of gold or of money, whatever it is, drachmas. To the second, he gives, I believe it is three, and to the third, he gives one. And he says, when I return, I want to see that you have been using this resource to multiply my influence, to gain more resources for my kingdom, for, for the, the household that you are stewards over. And he leaves, and he's gone for quite some time, and he comes back to find two of the three stewards have been very faithful to what they have been given. The one who has five was very faithful. He's multiplied it. He's made it into ten. So... That very pleased master commends his servant and says, you have been faithful over a small thing. I'm going to now make you ruler over much. Goes to the second servant who had only two or three, I can't remember which one it is, talents of, of, uh, of, of resources. And he has doubled it. He's made four. And so the master is once again very, very happy and pleased with him. He says, you have been faithful in small things. So I'm going to make you ruler over much. And the one who was given the very least the one who had the least amount of pressure upon him, the one who should have been able to do something, and even if he didn't, it would have been that big of a loss. He was so afraid of losing that money, so afraid of, of not pleasing his master, that instead of investing it, instead of buying more resources that could be multiplied, he simply buried a hole in the, dug a hole in the ground and buried that talent down. So his master comes back and he says, you're going to be happy to hear that I didn't lose the gold that you gave me. What he doesn't realize is that the master didn't tell him not to lose the gold. The master told him to be a good steward of it, to invest it wisely, to do what he was told to do with it. That one had such a small amount, but was not faithful in that small amount. And so he was cast away into the outer darkness. Think about your truthfulness, friends. Are you truthful in the smallest of things? Are you faithful with the words that you share with people? If you are prone to make up stories and pass them off as truth, if you are prone to change the details of history so that you look a little bit better or a little bit less worthy of criticism, if you tell lies when easily truth could be told in its place, God is not going to make you a faithful steward over much. 
if you, if you do not treat the very smallest bits of truth in your life as something worth your faithfulness. So we need to be a people of truth. We need to be dependable to the Lord. That means that as His people, when we say we're going to do something, that we, we make every effort to do it. We live in a society today where excuses are like, like an art to be mastered. How can I make up a reason why I shouldn't do the thing that I said that I would do and then not have to feel bad about not doing it? But friends, Christ did what He said He was going to do. Our Master whom we love, whom we adore, the one who saved us, keeps His word. And so we too ought to keep our word. If we struggle to keep our word, that means we shouldn't give our word very much. We should be careful until we can grow stronger in keeping our word to not make a bunch of empty promises that we can't keep. So often the promise is a tool used to gain favor from someone. And so often the favor is what we're really after. We're not really after trying to bless someone or be a benefit to them. So don't just make empty promises that you're not going to keep because that's not faithfulness. Be consistent. Don't just follow the Lord God when it's easy for you to do so. When it is convenient for you to slot holy things into your life, that's great. But when it's inconvenient, are you consistent in following the Lord to such a degree that you're going to let the rest of your life move around the anchor that you have tied yourself to? That like a, a tree in the middle of a storm where the, the current has washed the waters up onto the bank of, this, of, the, of, the, of the, the creek bed when it rains and it pours, and that tree is rooted so tightly, it's not going anywhere. It knows what it is. It knows where it belongs. And though that water pushes against it again and again and again, the water has to move. Is that our life? And that Christ is the root that we cling to. That everything else might come to us, but everything else moves around that stable root of Jesus Christ. That's how we display dependency in our lives. That's how we display consistency. And are you loyal to others? Can they count on you to be there? Our first loyalty, of course, friends, is to Jesus Himself. So any promise made to another that conflicts with the truth of God, you've got to reorder that. You've got to prioritize Jesus Christ first. But are you loyal to those who have become friends in your life, that have become family? Do you tell them the truth? Do you help them when they are in need? Can they trust you? Christ Himself is described as faithful. That always confused me. When I was younger, and I would read that, I'd be like, how can Christ be faithful? He doesn't have to have faith in anybody. Right? He, he doesn't have to have faith because He knows all things. Faith is hope in what is unseen. But Christ is, is God in the flesh. How could, he have, how could He be described as faithful? Remember that same word, pistis, doesn't only mean faith, as in having faith, it means being faithful. It means being worthy of faith. And Jesus Christ, above all other names, is worthy of our faith. Jesus' faith evoking in that the consistency of His words and His actions would inspire us to put our trust in Him. He's not having faith in any others in any real way. So we can see that this type of faithfulness is not exactly the same type as having faith in something else. 2 Timothy 2, 1-2 says, then, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. A few months ago, we, we took three months to show this from the scriptures what kinds of faithful men God would call to serve as deacons 
and elders. And remember that list of requirements as we're just a few days away from ordaining our first group of deacons. I'm so excited about that. Remember the list of requirements wasn't about what they could do. It wasn't about their skills. It wasn't about what kind of knowledge they had accumulated. Again and again and again, the most important things that determine whether a person can serve the Lord is their character. Are they faithful? Are they people that love the Lord first and are consistent in their pursuit of Him? Faithfulness was one of three very specific fruit that Jesus pointed out was lacking in the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus was very upfront with those Pharisees. He was very honest with them in showing them that they might have had knowledge, they might have had a book wisdom, they might have been able to cite verses better than the other people around them. They had all this information in their heads. They had gained positions where they could judge other people. And while their outward actions appeared holy in many circumstances, they were often hiding an utter deficiency of love and grace in the heart. Rather than depending upon God in all things, true faithfulness, they were hiding their self-dependence under the veil of religious proficiency. They wanted the world to think that they were faithful men, so they did all the things they were supposed to do, except for love, except for be humble, except for dwell with understanding of those who are around them. To be a faithful person, a person who others feel confident in trusting, we cannot let our attempts at love be hypocritical. When a faithful man, Jesus, appeared, the people could tell the difference between him and the Pharisees, couldn't they? They could see which one truly loved them. This fruit of faithfulness can be expressed in so many different arenas of life. God has given you ways to put this faithfulness into action. If you are a married man or woman, what better arena to show faithfulness than to keep the vows that you have publicly proclaimed to your spouse? To live according to those promises that you made. To live in such a way that there is no appearance of evil to others. That you're not going to do things that would even make your wife or your husband doubt or wonder if you're being faithful. What an awesome opportunity to show God's faithfulness in the way that you keep your promises to others, in the way that you care for their needs, in the way that you provide for one another, in the way that you defer to the other's desires instead of constantly desiring what you want first. But perhaps you're not married. How can you dis display faithfulness in your life? How can you put this into practice? You could do it at your job. In the way that you do what your job description says that you're supposed to do and you do it to the best of your ability. That you do it in such a way that God might even be honored in your proficiency at your work, whether it's secular work or not. That you can in your job display the faithfulness of Christ by being faithful to what you have been given. By being a steward over the small thing that has been put into your own hands. You can be diligent in faithfulness through your studies. If you're a student at a school and you are given the opportunity to learn do you take that lightly or are you just collecting 
the, uh, what are they called, grants, the grant money? Or are you there to seriously learn, to apply to your life the skills and the, the, the teaching that has been given to you? Be a faithful student if that's the realm of life that you're living in right now. Whatever small responsibility God has given to you today, be faithful in it. I want us all to take a second to realize this, that if we're not trusting in the faithful one, if our hope, if our confidence isn't in Jesus Christ, then there's only so much faithfulness that other people can even give to you. If, if Christ, who is perfect truth and perfect goodness, is not the standard of your behavior, then other people putting their faith in you is a risk at best because your standard for what is good and true might shift with the wind. If you don't have an eternal standard that says, this is what is good, this is what is true, then how much can you be trusted on to be consistent? The immutability of our God, the fact that He never changes, helps us to be more faithful than we otherwise ever could because we cling to the truth that never changes, that will always be. And so as we read these fruits of the Spirit, it gives us a great opportunity to examine our hearts, church. And I pray that throughout this series we've been doing that, that we might look upon ourselves and ask, am I truly kind to others? Does this fruit of goodness ever show up on my branches? Am I a faithful person in that by living in a loving and patient and kind and good and self-controlled way that others might see that and put their trust in me, that when I tell them about Jesus Christ, they don't just look at me as another joker, but they look at me as that person who does what he says he's going to do, that person who keeps her word, that person who is reliable and dependable. Are we bearing these fruit in our lives? Friends, I don't say that to condemn you. If you're not bearing these fruit, then, then simply allow the word of God to be like a, a fertilizer to you today. To let it be like that injection of nitrogen-rich soil that will help you to grow and to bear the kind of fruit that you need to bear because you can't bear it on your own. Not one of us is good like God is good. So don't lose heart. Philippians 1.6 reminds us, saying, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if you've been out of step, put your eyes back on your commander. Listen again for his voice that says left and right and left and begin to march with the family of God. Begin to walk faithfully forward so that together we can accomplish the good work that God has set his church to accomplish in the world. We will see how God intends to accomplish those things in the next two fruits of the Spirit as we wrap up Galatians chapter 5 next week. But in the meantime, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer and then we're going to sing one more song before we exit.